Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome back to another episode of your favourite Downton Abbey podcast. Downton Abbey, the official podcast with me, Anita Rani. This is your guide to everything Downton and the place to get you ready for the upcoming movie, Downton Abbey, A New Era. In this episode, we're going to be diving into the world of the characters above stairs. They are the face of Downton, both for the house and the village. It's their duty to preserve this establishment and take on the responsibilities that come with such a huge task. And over the years, the family have undergone a lot. Scandals, blackmail, ruinous investments, tragedies, as well as some more joyous things, such as marriages, fantastic parties, and welcoming new younger members of the family. I asked those tasked with playing them what it's been like. And first up, Michelle Dockery. So, Michelle, Lady Mary Talbot? Yes. Yes. Do you know, I often forget, and I I still call myself Lady Mary Crawley, and of course she's not Crawley anymore. She's a Talbot. Actually, it's Talbot. 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 How long does it take you to get the voice? Well, to be honest, I think I found her voice quite early when I auditioned for the part when I was 26. Um, (laughs) I... um, I sort of found her voice from the script. I was just like, I think this is the way she talks. And so I just sort of went for it. And it obviously worked and they liked it and it sort of stuck. And it's very easy to kind of fall back into her voice, you know, now I've been doing it for so long. But until somebody actually asks me a question like that, I'm like, yeah, she does have a voice. Yeah, she does. does. (laughs) There is a sort of Lady Mary voice. Because like you say, it's been on for 11 years of your life? 11 years and 12 years of our our life, which is is mad. She's an amazing character. She's a badass babe in my world. (laughs) I liked her from series one. Let me just put it out there. When people are like, oh, she's a bit of a bitch. I'm like, nah, she's the real deal. That's what, you know. Yeah, she's a great character. She's amazing, amazing. So where is she when we meet her in the new film? Well, Mary's certainly softened over the years. You know, I think the audience have kind of witnessed that as time has gone on and various things have happened to her and the family over the years. She's certainly less mean and kind of petty than she was in the beginning, you know, particularly with that relationship with Edith. And she's really kind of grown into this character that is, she has real sort of core values about the family, about the how, about Downton, and has embraced it wholeheartedly. Whereas originally, you know, there's this one episode in the first series where she says to Cora, you know, this isn't the life for me. And I sort of expected her to be more of the wild one, maybe more like Sybil was initially. And I thought Mary would kind of eventually leave or she would, you know, you'd see more of her in the city and in the kind of social life. And and actually, she's ended up being much happier at home and running the household. And it ended up meaning far more to her than I think she even thought in the beginning, which was a surprise to me. It's interesting because when I was watching it, I thought... That's her destiny. Yeah. As the eldest child, 
And maybe I'm coming at it because I come from an Indian background and mm. there's so many parallels yeah. between kind of big hierarchy and family structure and all the rest of it. I'm like, she's the eldest daughter mm. in this family and it is all on her shoulders whether she likes it or not. Yeah. You know, and she stepped into that role to take on becoming the custodian of this in right. incredible family legacy. That's right. And I think it's her giving into it. Eventually yeah. she had to just accept it. This is who I am. This is what I was born into. And rather than resisting it actually caused her so much trouble <laughs> in the beginning, you know, and her relationship with her father and her mother. And, and so I think in the end, she had to give into it and ended up enjoying it far more than she thought she would. And that relationship with your dad, um, the Lord, with your dad, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> grows even more in this new film without giving too much away. He really hands the reins over to you, doesn't he? Yeah. That respect. Like, it, yeah. we really see you come into your own now. Yeah. It's taken some... Uh, <laughs> he was reluctant at first, you know, but he's gradually kind of let Mary take the reins, as you say. And I, I love their relationship. You know, I think in the beginning, I think Mary sort of felt a sort of almost guilty that she wasn't born a son. She, you know, he, he never had a son. And I think she felt like she could never please him. So I think that, that seeing her journey of now becoming, you know, the manager of the house, and I think he's so proud of her. Yeah. And it's made their relationship much better. She's taking on so much when so little was expected of her as a woman. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think she loves that. I think Mary needs to do do as much as she can. I, I, it would have been very boring just to marry into a life that meant that she wasn't active doing something, you know. She's just not that type of woman. And and I think all of the female characters have, they're all kind of so advanced. I mean, Julian's always kind of, it's a very important part of that time. And as time is evolving, you know, women are, were gaining more freedom. And, and he writes that for so many of the female characters in it. I mean, Edith sort of went way beyond, I think, anyone ever imagined in her independence and becoming a journalist. And and he's just, the way he writes women is, like you say, it's just amazing. Now to our favourite Irishman, Tom Branson. Let's hear from Alan Leach. I mean, we really should put you on the therapist chair, shouldn't we? There's so much to discuss Poor with Tom. Tom. Poor Tom. Poor Tom. Poor Tom. Do we feel sorry for Tom? Not now, but back then. <laughs> well, yeah, you came in as a chauffeur, fell in love with the youngest daughter, Lady Sybil. By the way, I'm still not over Sybil dying. I know. She, she was such hot. a rock star. She yeah. was it. She was doing it for the girls. She was she like, was. keep your money down. Yeah. I don't want to step out. I'm Going shucking to... up with a chauffeur. Exactly, yeah. But, <laughs> but I genuinely thought at the end, like, I, I lost a bet to her because I, I was quite, I, I never paid. I think I still owed Jasper and Philly some money <laughs> because I said, I'm gone. Like, there's no way they're going to keep me. But I love, that's a great thing that Julian did. He said, it's actually more interesting to have this guy who you know, ran away with the daughter. Daughter's gone. He can't go back to Ireland because of, uh, you know, he's basically got run out of the country. And watching this guy struggle to kind of find out who he is and find his own identity. And you know what? When you turned up as the chauffeur with your politics mm -hmm. and the really important, as you say, there's so much historical context. You mentioned the backdrop of Ireland yeah. and the struggles mm -hmm. for you know, independence, independence yeah. exactly, the Republic. And yet here he is working in, in a British aristocratic family. It kind of, you you need his character there, but you're mm. also kind of struggling to understand what he's doing there. Yeah. Like, what is he doing there? How did well, you I kind of get your head around this character? Well, 
I love the fact that like that literally playing that is like, why am I here? And kind of trapped in this world that he hates and actually really kind of rallied against and suddenly find himself part of the establishment in the worst place that he wanted and only because of who he fell in love with and then the tragedy of her dying. And then trying to figure out his daughter's definitely part of it and struggling with that because that's part of her identity, but he didn't want it to be his. And I love the fact that what Julian gave Tom was that struggle, but then an understanding of the importance of making this a working estate. And I love that he always wants whatever is there to be of use to the community. And I like that about about his character and even the fact that when he became a state manager, he wanted to be hands on. He wanted to actually go out and, and work the land himself in a way to find value within this world that he struggled to see this class system. Because you're right, he is representing so much. He's one of the people, he's questioning mm. everything and quite right. And we're still having those debates today, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure we'll still be having them for a long time. Mm. Well, Julian also, just to add yeah. to that is, I only found this out, I think it was on the last series when we were on the US press tour. He said, Tom is the tour guide for any person who watches this show because he's discovering this world at the same time as the audience are. So that's what Tom became that guide of trying to navigate this world. So he was always someone you could go back to and, and use as kind of a cornerstone of, okay, now that's why he looks as yeah. perplexed as he does or the audience are trying to figure out with him, which I quite liked. But I guess you're right. It all comes back to Julian's brilliant writing mm. and understanding of all these characters and yeah. why they are there and what they're doing there. And mm. with Tom, I feel... The character, or you still stay true to your values because you never fully say, I've bought into this. Yeah. You, you never hear him say, yeah, I agree with mm. it. I remember you specifically saying some, someone questions you about, you know, being within the establishment mm. and you say something along the lines of them being good people. Yeah. Because the they're good. Yeah. Right. They're good people. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, okay. It's the people that he's bought into. Yeah. It's not the yeah. world. It's not their life. It's them. Yes, and exactly. That yeah. makes sense because yeah. you're the character. Tom is of such high, he's so highly principled. He is, yeah. And I think that was one of the fun things to play was that idea of him struggling with his principles and then the love that he definitely has for this family, you know. And there is a line, and I'm kind of forgetting, it, but it's very similar to that where he says like, "I bet on people rather than you know classes," and, and I think that's very true of him. So, yeah, and, and again, as you say, it's Julian's ability to write these characters and put them in difficult situations where it would be much easier not to write these scenes or to, to go on these journeys with them. But Julian's always been very, I think, very honest and true to the character of Tom as well, because it, it would have been really easy just to make him go, oh, actually, this is great. Yeah, woohoo, the money. <laughs> Fantastic. Cocktails every night. Woohoo. Yeah. <laughs> Which in reality, so many of us are like, yeah, we're so highly principled. They're like, all oh, right, show me the money. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, we, well, I watched it with my husband and the movie and he, you know, again, you know, we worked for everything we have and all the rest of it was mm -hmm. so most of us far removed from that world yeah. that you are the person we can like you say yeah he's right Julian Fellows you're our guide to mm -hmm. this world Yeah. and my husband was like first I didn't get it like why would he and then it's like no because he's still got his principles and he's still got his values mm -hmm. and he hasn't changed who he is yeah. Or maybe we're just convincing ourselves. That's well, no, and I, I think I've always enjoyed playing those scenes with Tom where he kind of like, there is a kind of a, a baffled amusement that like, this is the way things are. And I think, that, I, I, think I, I probably have that myself sometimes. There you have it. 
two of our favourite above-stairs characters. But for all the characters we love, there are those that we still miss. Julian Fellows is the man responsible for the fate of all. As the writer of the show, I asked him how he decides when it's time for a character to move on. Your female characters are brilliant. You write women incredibly. I'm still devastated, as I'm sure lots of people are, that Lady Sybil died because she was the one, you know. She was there fighting it and she... She was the freedom fighter. She ran off with the chauffeur. I mean, that would never have gone down. I mean, they would never have accepted that, surely, in real life. No, I know, but of course, when (laughs) Sybil died, Jessica, who played her, had said very early on, I'm doing three years and then that's it. And in England, you can only get an actor for a three-year contract tops. And so... I had ages to think about it, and I thought of eclampsia, and I learned all I could about eclampsia, which was in the 20s still a a big killer, because once you'd started having the fits, you were going to die. And so we used that. And and also you, you had often this very bewildering and tragic interlude when they would have the fits, but then there'd be a period of calm, and you'd think, oh, everything's going to be all right, and then they would start again and they'd die all of which suited me as a dramatist. Mm. But uh, the difficulty was when Dan suddenly decided just before the read-through that he was going to leave as well. I know, and you did it on Christmas, the Christmas episode. And, well, <laughs> and of course, by then I'd written up to episode five or six and we had directors and everything else. And I mean, otherwise, I probably would have killed them together in a car crash or something. But um, Julian, we th- I think you love writing the death scene. I mean, <laughs> I'm still not over Mr. Pamuk in episode one, to be honest. I mean, that was a shock. But, uh, but, but the, the trouble is that when someone dies in a family context, yeah. then you have to have funerals and memorials and this and this and this and everyone in sobs. And we just done that with Sybil. I couldn't then, you know, in episode seven, the next one dies. Then we have more funerals. The whole series <laughs> turned into six feet under. So uh, I, I felt the only way I could avoid that was by killing him in the last shot of the series and then having a six-month break before the beginning of the next series, which is what we did. But the difficulty was that meant showing it on Christmas night. I know. So the letters that came out of that had to be seen to be believed. And, of course, all the writers think that you have decided to kill Matthew. Yes. Whereas, in fact, we would have kept Matthew to the end of the show. Of course. But, um, you know, Dan had a sort of gut feeling he wanted to move on. And as an actor, and I've been an actor... Uh, you you can't really argue no, with that because not. there are no rules. No. You've got to do what you think is right. Of course you do. So does that inform your writing now? No, not really. I think that if you get led by the audience, you know, they think they want to lead you, but they don't. No. And all they want is for their favourite characters to be happy. And if you obeyed the audience in all those instructions, you'd be trying to make a dramatic narrative out of a series of enormously happy people, which is quite difficult to do. But alongside the heartbreaks, Julian also gives us our fair share of happily ever afters. Thanks, Julian. Here's Elizabeth McGovern, who plays Cora Crawley on the latest Happily Ever After Wedding, which got her thinking about her own character's journey. You start with a wedding, which is a wonderful way to, yeah, to begin. Tom and Lucy get married. And Tom's a fascinating character, isn't he? Because he kind of transcends, he goes from 
downstairs to upstairs. Exactly. It's a very modern character in that sense. Yeah. And it kind of represents everything that made the whole system start to crumble, really. It would take, and we know this about Lord and Lady Grantham, they have big hearts. They certainly do. Because... I think I think whether you um, believe that actually existed in life or not, I mean, I suppose that said a lot about your naivete or... I mean, I don't know. I mean, people... You know, I'm I mean, sure there were some. Yeah, exactly. So let, let's do it. Let's put Cora on the therapist chair and talk uh-huh. about how she adapted to this life. Yes. I mean, and first of all, it, he, it was a marriage of convenience for him, at least. Yeah. You grew to love each other very quickly, but he married you for your money. Yeah. I think in our imaginary life, Cora really did fall for Robert. So she went in with all her heart and did adjust incredibly well, probably better than a lot of those Americans that married into the aristocracy. I think a lot of them found it to be a real shock. And it wasn't always a very happy thing for them. But I suppose at some point the decision was made. I mean, in the first scripts, actually, when I read them, you know, the personality of Cora wasn't particularly well defined. I think she kind of was honed over time, as Julian wrote. And, you know, she could have been anybody, really, at first. She was just a woman in a situation, a woman who had no control over, I can't even remember what the word was, but we're endlessly saying it in the first season, her oh, yes. um, entail or yes, something. I'm, ent- I'm, yeah. I'm sure that's not right. but no, um, There was a word, yes, yeah, for, for yeah. the money that you had. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, I really didn't know what class she was or who she was, but I think we sort of, in an unspoken way, it evolved. I mean, Julian would take cues from me and I would take cues from him and we never really talked about it particularly. I mean, I was completely shocked in year five to find out that she was a nouveau riche daughter of a Jew <laughs> whose mother was Shirley <laughs> MacLaine. <laughs> I never in a million years would have guessed that. I love it. Only in Downton. Yeah. And you are like a family, aren't you, behind yeah. the scenes? yeah. Well, as I say, you know, I think all of us have grown up together. I mean, to have this common experience of being in a show like Downton, which has really impacted the world to a certain extent. And I think that's a a kind of experience that can either tear people apart or really bond them. And, And I feel that it's bonded us. We've been lucky that way. So how delighted were you when the film script for the second film came through? Yeah, I was. Well, I was. I was delighted that it was so good. Yeah, and it is. Great. I mean, that's that's the flip side of doing a series is that you're there and the f- script lands on your doorstep and you've got to do it no matter what it is. That that's that can be tricky, especially after playing a character for so long. I imagine you all know who you are so well that you probably all have ideas about what should happen yeah. to them or what yeah, they say. Of and, course, yeah. So thank goodness this script, I mean, it is going to be great. The storyline and the twists and turns are fantastic. And your character gets to go to France. Yeah. Lucky you. Fun. Yes, was it? Of course it was fun. Are you kidding? We had to um, quarantine in a hotel in the south of France for a week. I'm sure you've heard about that. It was one of those things where you just, you see Carson by the pool and you're all in in the south of France. And you just, uh, you just think it just doesn't get better than this it's just it's all just surreal and you were there with your husband because Simon directed it how was that what's it like being directed by your husband you've worked together before we have yeah 
Well, I have to say, you know, I just felt so proud of him. That was my main takeaway. Because, of course, since he's my husband, I don't really have a sense. Or, and we haven't worked together in a while. And when we had worked together, it was at, towards the beginning of his career. So he's grown so much in confidence and expertise, just sheer expertise. And the way he handled all the challenges, and there are many for doing something like this with so many characters, so many stories to weave and so many plot points to make clear. And the way he handled the actors and got the humor out of situations that I think a lot of directors wouldn't have seen the humor. I felt so proud of him and I felt so proud of how much the cast loved him. Phew. For you, you know, it's like, oh, the dra- the Phew, yes. exactly. Phew. Yeah. Totally. Well, and, you know, to me, he's just the guy, you know, the schlubby guy that I come home to every night. So I, my jaw was like on the floor most of the time. It was well, it was a revelation. He stepped into your world, though. You know, this is your domain. That's true. Yeah. But he'd had an earful for 10 years, so it was payback time <laughs> because he'd had to shoulder a lot of... The, the moaning, the ecstasy, you know, the, the kind of things that you bring home when you're working all the time. But I'll never forget on the first morning when I was doing this walk, which is as dramatic as it might appear on camera when you just walk up to the driveway that leads to the house and it's just all so grand. And in this instance, it was teeming with thousands of crew and tents and, I mean, even more extensive than anything we'd ever had on the series. It's just so huge. And there was my husband leading it all. It was just such a vision. It was just unbelievable. That So that was, I, I'll never forget that moment. Oh, you've described it really well. You know, I feel it. I feel yeah. that. It's yeah. beautiful. Another lady of Upstairs that we haven't heard from yet is the second daughter of Cora and Robert Crawley, Lady Edith. From jilted bride to conceiving a child out of wedlock, shock horror, who would have thought she'd have ended up running a magazine as well as finding true love with a Marquis? I'm with Laura Carmichael, Lady Edith. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for that. All right. <laughs> do, 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 do. In you. In you. Yeah. Laura. Hi. You're back. Yeah. You're back in the clothes. I mean, yeah. we've been talking about clothes. Yes. Anyway, mm-hmm. generally, not that any of the audience knew that we were chatting about clothes, but <laughs> yeah. I had to comment on Laura's outfit because oh. she always looks amazing. Thank you. Now, I read the script mm-hmm. for the new film. Amazing. It is amazing. Oh, good. But all I kept thinking was, but what about the clothes? Oh, my goodness. It was so much fun this year. It's, it's always exciting. And moving through the 20s, I think it always gets more exciting because the hemlines come up a bit. You get a bit more masculine tailoring. So there's some... I'm wearing trousers at one point. But, yeah, the south of France element for Edith is so much fun because she has, you know, kind of vacation wardrobe that just appears overnight, as it does in The Magic of Movies. And it's great fun. And it's another change to the world around Downton. Absolutely. And what's going on. And let's talk about changes to your character, Lady Edith, because you have been through so much. I know. So So where do we meet her in this new film? So she is very happily married to Bertie and they've just 
had a baby together, who we don't actually see in the film. But yeah, she's like a working mum. And so, yeah, she's got a nanny. And I think there's something in that that you can, lots of us can relate to. I think it's a sort of women trying to keep hold of themselves once they've had a family. And so, yeah, it's interesting to see her talk with Bertie about the newspaper and still wanting to write. And when she goes to the south of France, that kind of part of her brain is sparked again when she thinks there's a story here and I can take some photos and print them in the magazine. So, yeah, it's great fun. Yeah, because, you know, we're still having conversations now about working women exactly. and what that means yeah. and the amount of judgment. Exactly. And so what's, you know, yeah. Lady Edith, who's, you know, working and doesn't have to exactly work. yeah and you know and, and the women around her yeah. questioning that that's right so it is a kind of you know that feeling of where she gets so much of her satisfaction and her sense of self in fact and Michelle and I were just talking about this in another interview that we feel like the Michelle the Michelle the Mary and Edith relationship has softened as yeah. they've both found their place you know and they they are getting a lot of fulfillment through managing the estate for Mary and, and running the newspaper for Edith, it sort of chills out that kind of rivalry between them because they're both working and fulfilled in other ways. They're not competing over, you know, who's going to marry who anymore. Completely. Yeah. And that's why, you know, it's so well loved. But within yeah. that, there is so much to make us question and challenge us mm -hmm. and, you know, your character developments. Yeah. And, and I bring it back to kind of, you know, you, I love the fact that you've already revealed that she's going to be wearing trousers. I'm like, yeah. cheering, liberation. It's so great. It's so fun. And, like, you see how all of that changed. And I think we move very quickly in our show, you know, from series, the years pass quite quickly and you do see how the clothes become more practical, as these women wanted to do more. And their lifestyle changes. Yeah. So just how excited do you get as a now when you get the script and <laughs> yeah. you think, what will she be wearing? And and you go to wardrobe. Like, just talk us through that. Because I, when I watch the programme, my half of my brain is like, oh, my God, imagine just this is your job where you just wear these clothes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, It's magic. Do, do they measure you? Do you know what you're going to be wearing? Do you get sent, you know, photos? Like, how yeah. does it work? So, I mean, it's, it's mad. I think for... For Michelle and I and Elizabeth and, yeah, the upstairs gals, it is a, a long process for Anna, our costume designer. And so she'll do lots of different things. She'll look for originals, you know, sort of vintage shops. And she does lots of shopping in Paris, actually, which was hard for her in 2020 because she was battling with the pandemic. So she was getting sent a lot of stuff sent things from America, you know, all sorts of trying to find these original pieces. And sometimes they might be too damaged to wear, so she might remake them. There might be ideas that she's had from scratch. She's a real, she's second to none, Anna. She's just incredible. She really is such a, she's a magpie. You know? I love that. It's so I great. love that you're actually wearing original pieces that yeah. get sent to you or a source so specifically. Special. That is incredible. You're yeah. Stepping into a story. Absolutely. I'll never forget Lily James. She was, for her wedding, her wedding dress was original. And it was from something like 1915 or 1916 or something like that. And it had never been worn. And I'll, we all just sat around and Maggie going, you know what that means? You know, that this she had this wedding dress ready and her, her partner didn't come back from the war. And we were all just oh. completely moved that this dress had sat there. And... Um, and now is, you know, you can 
Google pictures of Lily James wearing it. It's had this other life, this dress. So, yeah, it's special. Ah, Lady Edith, how we do love you and your delicious costumes. They are staples of Downton and tell their own story of a character's experience. Therefore, I had to speak to Anna Robbins, who's been the costume designer on Downton since Series 5. But first, I asked Michelle Dockery about how she transforms into Lady Mary. What are the hairstyles? What are they wearing? <laughs> because the joy is so is visual as much as it is the scripts and the characters. It's watching those magnificent sets and the costumes you get to wear. Mm. When you put them on, do you instantly become Lady Mary? And what is the process? Do you have to have mm-hmm. fittings? Are you measured? Yeah. Like, how does it work? So often the first thing, actually, after reading the script is your fitting. That's the first. That, for me, that feels like day one is going to see Anna. And I so look forward to those fittings because I know that she's going to step it up another level. She always does every time, just when I think the costumes couldn't get any better. And for Mary, she always is looking for, you know, where can she be one step ahead? You know, she got the bob very early and... And the curling tongs. And the curling tongs. Yeah, yeah, so it's all been part of the story that Mary's kind of, you know, rolling with the times of the fashion. And so this time we wanted to, because we had the short bob with the fringe in the first year, bangs as they call them in America. (laughs) So this time we wanted to slightly adjust it and make it a little softer, the hair. So then the costume sort of informs that. So, you know, in this case anyway, so it kind of started with where can the hair go, you know, for this one. And Nosh Oldham, our head of department, was the one who was like, let's soften it. And so then that kind of informs the costumes a bit. So it's just great. And she's like, she'll bring out, Anna will bring out like a piece of beautiful material that she's found in Paris. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of the day wear. I yeah. love, I mean, of course, the dinner wear is beautiful with the tiaras and the diamonds and all of that. <laughs> but there's something, I just love the suits and the, you know, day dresses and... Yeah. It's, it's gorgeous. And there's always a sort of hint of Chanel that she likes Mary to kind of have, which I love. So here she is, costume designer Anna Robbins, a lover of the 20s. She described herself as being heavily armed with research folders when she interviewed for the job in 2013 in the hope that it would be a perfect match. Evidently, it was, as two series and one film later, she's back on set of Downton Abbey for the new film. I started off by asking her where she gets her inspiration. So I I get inspiration when I'm designing for the characters on Downton in many many places and I guess my research started years ago when I joined the series and has never really stopped since and so you you start off researching broadly across the period that the project set in and the specific worlds that the characters live in and you're getting to know the dress codes and the fashions of the time whilst also looking to research for particular characters and how their wardrobes might evolve. And I do that, obviously, there's a lot of internet-based research, but I still like to visit the V&A and go to portrait galleries and buy hard cover books that weigh down my bookshelves at home and really sort of delve deeply into the world that I'm trying to create and find the characters from within that. So 
In Downton Abbey, A New Era, the new movie, what was it like taking the characters into this new era? What were the things you knew visually that you had to get right? So for the new film, it was really exciting to properly look at the fact that we're coming in towards the end of the 1920s and fashion doesn't suddenly, you know, flip a switch and turn into 1930s on the, you know, on, on New Year's Eve. So the 1930s elements are starting to emerge at about this time, which is quite exciting. So we're able to look at some quite different silhouettes, different hemlines, the fact that we've got some belted looks on Lady Mary, the fact we explore a trouser leg on Lady Edith. Lots of quite, like, quite momentous changes are taking place. And the fact that we travel to the south of France allows us to explore leisure wear in a way that we haven't before in terms of seeing tennis outfits and swimwear and just this very relaxed sense of holidaying somewhere with warmer climes and this beautiful saturated sunlight. So it was an opportunity to delve into a completely different world. Come on then, can you give us a tease for any particular looks you're extremely excited to be giving the Downton Abbey fans this time around? Something that we might be able to spot. So Lady Edith in trousers is definitely something to look out for. After we'd found this original pyjama set and that then led on to thinking well actually I'd quite like to design some trousers and we've got this pair of beautiful ivory wide leg palazzo pants which we've paired with this gorgeous kind of peach and cobalt printed loose cover-up thing that she wears on top with a typical Lady Edith um, headscarf and as a look it's so stylish and it just for me is everything that the Riviera was at that time. All the female characters have sung your praises quite rightly. What I'd like to know is how on earth you went about sourcing the clothes, the materials, whatever you need to bring these costumes to life during yeah. a pandemic. So the pandemic changed everybody's lives and it changed the way that we worked so dramatically that it's really strange to think back to a time that we haven't had to work around it. And it was really challenging and I felt like I almost designed the film from my phone. Like everything became digital and remote and I had to go from shopping physically in vintage fairs and feeling the fabrics to looking at Instagram and Etsy and finding my traders online and working just by sending images backwards and forwards. One of the positives that came out of it was that I had to cast the net much wider and ended up finding these amazing pieces from across the globe. And so there's, you know, this um, peach and cobalt part of Lady Edith's costume that she wears with her trousers is from LA, from this woman that I I tracked down on the internet and I ended up having this really lovely communication with a, a collector in New York who's who had this incredible selection of dresses and worked with me on, on a few pieces. Could you put a number on how many costumes there are in the movie? Um, on this film, we made about 300 garments. There were about 542 jewellery pieces in the film. So... There are, there are a lot of costumes in Downton Abbey. <laughs> I think what was really lovely, though, in this is that we know that Lady Mary is going to have beautiful dresses and Lady Edith and the upstairs characters are going to look immaculate and have different costumes to, to be able to appreciate as we go through the film. But it was lovely to be able to dress the downstairs staff 
in finery. How do you actually make it happen? How do you make sure everyone is ready in time for the shoot? Because you've got so many different elements, clothes, hair, makeup. So what does your day look like? I mean, it's timed to, to within the minute as to when each cast member goes to sit in the makeup chair and have their makeup done and their hair done and then comes to their trailer to be dressed. And sometimes you do a bit of makeup and then you'll get dressed and then you're going to do hair so that the dress doesn't mess up the hair. And it's all, you know, planned with military precision and it's like a Formula One pit stop. Whilst Anna's team are taking on Ferrari with their speed and efficiency, I asked the Lord of the Manor, Hugh Bonneville, what it's been like playing his character, Robert Crawley, for over a decade. I always tease Julian about the, you know, for the fact that Robert seems his IQ used to get lower and lower. <laughs> as he just didn't, you know, and his emotional IQ also, he just didn't see, for instance, that, you know, Lady Mary was grieving in season four or that she should snap out of it or whatever. He often didn't see things that were under his nose. So I'd often, you know, I'd say to Junior, for heaven's sake, he's getting thicker and thicker, this man. <laughs> and uh, he'd say, bear with me, bear with me. And usually by the end of the season, he'd have, you'd actually come back to thinking, actually, he's not too bad a bloke. He's all right. He's not as... um bullheaded as uh, as he makes out. And so I think in this particular film, in, in this storyline, he goes through a big, big old journey, actually, and uh, it's very deftly written, I, I, I think, and uh, very satisfying to play. Yeah, it's a shame we can't say what that thing is because it's, ma it's mm -hmm. massive. Mm. kind of makes you question so much. Yes, it does, actually, yeah. but it, it resolves very well. <laughs> you know, the f I think one of the first scenes, I think it's in probably the first episode in series one, where something that happens that sets you out and you think, ah, I like this guy, is when you come downstairs to the kitchen. And oh, you... and see Bates. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. I remember watching that and thinking, oh, he's a good man. <laughs> he's a good man. He, li he yeah. likes, he comes downstairs, you know, yeah. he might be the Lord upstairs, but he's not too proud to come. And you see value and principles in other people. I think it's just interesting I remember Gareth Nemo, executive producer, and, and, and Julian Fellows. I remember they've talked in the past how Gareth never didn't take it to the BBC originally because he sort of suspected that because the BBC, as I know from another show I do, uh, used to do called W1A, um, you know, is, is sort of so conscious about uh, you know, class and structure and everything else that, that, that the Lord of the Manor, the Lord of the House, Lord, Lord uh, Grantham, would necessarily have to be a, a sort of evil, moustache-twirling Victorian nasty. I don't think, I think that's not true to say that uh, all BBC shows would be like that, but, but Gareth had a hunch that, that ITV would, would uh, be a better playground for this sort of show because Julian, the writer that he is, was adamant that um, just because he's a, you know, he's a feudal lord doesn't mean he's a nasty person. <laughs> um, and that's what I think is true of all his characters. You yeah. may feel in season one, for instance, that, um, you know, smoking out by the bike sheds, you've got uh, O'Brien and, uh, and Thomas, and that they're therefore, well, A, they're evil because they're smoking, obviously. Um, <laughs> obviously, but, yeah. uh, they're or, just Or they're the cool kids. Or they're the what, cool kids, <laughs> exactly. But they're bad through and through. Well, that's not the case. Julian yeah. always... You know, by the time, as the story progresses, you see his great sympathy for a character like Thomas and you understand why, you know, his behaviour uh, is what it is. And he's, I've said this before, Julian always writes, I believe, from the default position that people are good or try to be good. They may do bad things, yes. but they're not. I don't think he believes in evil, Julian. And I think that comes through and I think that's one of the 
qualities of the show, why the show has sustained so well, is that you find that there's a there's a default setting of trying to be good in life. And I think that's no less true of Lord Grantham than any of the others. Yes, he can be a fool and he can be a stick in the mud and he can be blind to what's in front of him, etc. But ultimately, yes, there's a benevolence and a tolerance and a liberalism. He's born into a conservative world and he's a conservator. That's his duty in life. But there's also a tolerance and a compassion, which I, I've always found appealing. Dame Penelope Wilton, who plays Isabel Crawley, now Isabel Merton, her arrival with her son Matthew Crawley was the shocking event that began Downton in series one, as Matthew, an unknown cousin, was now set to inherit Downton after the tragic sinking of the Titanic. Isabel was seen as a beacon of disruption as she entered the Crawley's world, working at the hospital and associating herself with personnel that especially Violet Crawley saw as unfit. But her kindness, brains and desire to do good changed everyone's minds and their hearts. Your character is so fascinating because actually she is from a different class. She's not upstairs, she's not downstairs, she's from an educated background. And so she actually has the capacity to put them in their place a little bit. She's just fascinating. Tell me what you thought about her when you first got the role and where you placed her. Well, I thought it was a very clever idea of Julian Fellows because she was every man. She was looking into that world from the outside. The way she was greeted in that world was very interesting because she was slightly despised by the people upstairs and slightly despised by the people downstairs because she wasn't grand enough to be served. But she found her place eventually. But she wasn't going to be put down by what she saw as um, privilege. And she thought she had something to offer. She also felt that a lot of it was ridiculous and felt that there was a new era coming. She has always been in a sort of vanguard of what's been going on. And she realised there was a writer called Winifred Holtby who wrote in the 30s, a bit later than this, in the 20s and the 30s, who wrote about the new middle class mm. that was emerging in the North, especially where the people was a lot of uh, as you know, industry. And so there was a middle class and a, the sort of fiefdoms of the aristocracy were beginning by this time, certainly, were beginning to lose their power. And I think Isabel realised that that was coming. It had always been there. I mean, she, she came from a very well-educated family and it was a very privileged family in many ways, considering the rest of the country. Mm. But she had an education and she was married to a doctor. So I thought it was very clever of Julian to to make her the eyes of the public looking in on on that society. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right because she's so ahead of her time in many ways. Yes, yeah. I think she probably is. We've got to talk about your relationship and how it developed with Maggie Smith's character with Lady Violet because it is so joyful to watch these two magnificent women and actresses spying together with this great script. It is brilliant. You must absolutely relish this job. Yes, we relished those scenes together. Of course, she's a wonderful actress, but she's a wonderful person. And... Um, we love doing those scenes together. Also, you know, we both come from a similar background as far as our careers are concerned because we started and still are theatre actresses. So the idea of having a sparring partner who can come back with you and 
play, as it were, a very fast game of tennis with you verbally um, is wonderful. And that's what Julian wrote. The only thing Julian didn't do, I think nine times out of ten, she won the argument, which (laughs) left me with... With, with, with my mouth open, which often they used to do the reverse, and so she'd win the argument, and then they'd, the camera would turn on me, and my mouth was open, or impossibly so cross that she could hardly reply. But that was Lady Grantham's privilege because um, she was faster than I was, <laughs> than Isabel Crawley was. And it is great to watch those scenes, but also you earned your respect with her because she didn't. Re- she still, she judged you the first time she met you. Oh, very much so. Yeah. She said, what should we call each other? She said, well, why don't we call Lady Grantham and Mrs Crawley? Yeah, she put, <laughs> me, in, she put me in my place immediately. <laughs> how, how did you get the part, Penelope? Did they come to you? Did you audition? How were you cast? No, I just was sent the first three scripts and I thought, well, nobody knew how it would go. We thought we'd do three of them, three series, and that would be it. But little did we know. There you have it, a comprehensive psychoanalysis of the above-stairs characters of Downton. You're welcome. Join me next time for episode 9, Below Stairs, where we'll be going through the green baize doors to find out how the other half live. This is Pat Moore, the boss. Yeah. Come on. You are. Come on. Let's yeah. like just put it out there. No, Who it's runs true. Downton? It's true. This is a Something Else production. Make sure you follow Downton Abbey, the official podcast, so you never miss an episode. And do not miss the film Downton Abbey, A New Era, only in cinemas this spring.